Well, good morning. So, uh, again, it's been a pleasure, a real honor to be here with such a, uh, a team of uh, ministers. Um, physicians are ministers just like ministers are ministers, <laughs> if that made sense. Um, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we need you this very hour. We need you to speak to each of us. I ask, Lord, that you would veil me behind your glory and that you would come close through the power of your Holy Spirit. And just as your Holy Spirit placed Jesus inside the womb of Mary, I pray that you would place the living word, Christ, in us through the power of the same Spirit. Wash us, cleanse us, fill us, so that we might go from this place some far to the other side of this great nation, some just up the road. But wherever you send us, may we be a light that others might see Jesus. So thank you for what you will do just now. We trust. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. In his retirement... Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia. Because Jefferson trusted that students would take their studies seriously, the code of discipline that he put in place was rather lax. Unfortunately, his trust proved a little unfounded, misplaced, and the misbehavior of the students led to a riot. A riot in which the professors who tried to restore order were attacked. The following day, a meeting was held between the university's board and, and Jefferson was a member of, such, of that board. And, and as they were there before the, uh, the disgust of defiant students, Jefferson began saying before the student body, this is one of the most painful events in my life. But then at that moment, he was overcome by emotion. And he burst into tears and another board member asked the rioters to come forward and to give their names. Nearly everyone did. And later one of them said this. It was not Mr. Jefferson's words, but it was his tears. Yes, perhaps Moody, that great preacher, had it right when he said, A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they only shine. We're talking about radical mission this morning. Radical mission. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 58. I understand it's a passage that Amen has studied many times. By God's grace, I pray that we can be refreshed and reminded of this important passage um, as we... Uh, prepare to leave this good conference. And uh, as you turn there, um, I want to just remind you, and I'm going to step over so I can see the screen with you. I want to remind you of a few quotations that um, we are given by inspiration that deal with Isaiah 58 specifically. Just in rapid fire, notice first, um, 
It says, the whole of the 58th chapter of Isaiah is to be regarded as a message for this time, to be given over and over again. She writes, what saith the Lord in the 58th chapter of Isaiah? The whole chapter, the whole chapter is of the highest importance. I've been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Read this chapter carefully and understand the kind of ministry that will bring life into the churches. Amen? Amen. She says, portions of scripture, even whole chapters, may be committed to memory to be repeated when Satan comes in with his temptations. The 58th chapter of Isaiah is a profitable one for this purpose. I don't know if you've thought of Isaiah 58 in that manner, but it's actually good as defense when the enemy attacks. Notice this. If we desire healthfulness of soul, a sunny experience, we must put into practice the rules given us in Isaiah 58. I mean, if we want to be able to look out into the congregation of the church in which we worship and we want to see smiles... We need to look a little bit more at Isaiah 58. Again, I urge you to consider Isaiah 58, she writes. I think there's no mistaking the point. She believes that Isaiah 58 is a critical passage for this very hour. In fact, two key ideas, before we even read the passage, because I trust you have many times, two key ideas emerge from this chapter immediately. One is afflicting of the soul, affliction of the soul, and then two, Sabbath rest. These two key points, as you probably are aware, are already in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23, when we find instruction on how to experience the Day of Atonement, which makes sense in keeping with the fact that we're in the antitypical Day of Atonement today. That just like God cleansed the sanctuary after 2,300 days in heaven, He is seeking to cleanse our temples, amen, so that He may dwell with us. So this is a very pertinent passage in light of where we find ourselves in Bible prophecy. So let's go to verse 1 without further ado. It says, "Cry, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Notice that it says that they are he is to Isaiah is to cry aloud. In this context, of course, God is asking the nation of Judah to awaken to its true condition and its need. But having just established this passage's relevance to us today, it makes sense that this is a message that we should be receiving today with a loud cry. And how interesting when we find Revelation 14.7 and Revelation 14.9 telling us that the first and third angel's messages are to be given with loudness. Amen? In fact, Revelation 18 tells us that that third angel's message will get a, 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 another shot in the arm, if you will, as a loud cry in earth's final hour. This message is for us, make no mistake. And it's interesting that it says that Isaiah is to point out their sins, which supposes that they didn't know about their sins. They had ignored their sins. And isn't that in keeping with Laodicean church, which thinks it's rich, when in reality it's not. It's poor, blind, and naked. Do you see the the relevance that this has for us today? Amen? Amen. Tell them their transgressions. It supposes that they don't know it. Notice verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. 
as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Now here's the irony. God has just asked Isaiah to address with a loud voice their, uh, their sins. And yet look how they are described here. I mean, is it just me? Do you not see a, a, a seeming quandary, a, a contradiction of terms? I mean, this profile sounds impressive. I mean, if you saw a congregation with some of these characteristics listed there, you'd say, you know, this, this church is happening, right? This sounds like a church you want to visit. They seek him daily. If statistics are still true, then, then we today are not even measuring up in this. Because statistics tell us that most Adventists don't even have a daily personal devotion. Amen? Right? And yet these people seek him daily. I mean, this, these are the type of people that you're going to find at GYC and amen. Right? Oh, come on now. Amen? I'm here too, so. These are the people who will say, yes, I studied the lesson this week. Perhaps they attend prayer meeting regu- Regularly. Not only this, they fast. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but come on. It says they don't just seek him daily. It says that they delight in knowing him. His ways. But catch it, there's very little doing in this passage, isn't there? Right? It's all about what they know. Notice that doing is strangely absent. It would appear that they simply like to to just hear about the ways of the Lord, to attend conferences on the way of the Lord, to, to watch programming on television of the ways of the Lord. They delight in it. It's fun. But where's the doing? You see, it's possible to focus more on what we don't do than what we do do, right? We don't steal, we don't commit adultery, we don't eat meat, we don't wear jewelry, we don't break the Sabbath. The list goes on and on. And I'm not belittling that list. But if faith was only about what you didn't do, then the monastery would be the safest place for all of us. Amen? How can we show the love of God if we don't step out? How can we be the light of the world if we don't shine forth? Notice verse 3. Why have We fasted, they say, and you have not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls? And you take no notice. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. See, they're fasting. Again, it's about something they are not doing. In this case, they're not eating. They're fasting. And as far as fasting goes, I mean, that's that's not listed amongst most Top three spiritual disciplines, typically. I'm not saying fasting is not important. I'm just saying, by and large, it's not, um, it's not as common as some of the other disciplines. But these folks are fasting and uh, 
it's like uh, they're living like those who are living on the day of atonement. They're afflicting their souls. It looks like what God's last day's church should look like. But like Laodicea, there's something missing. Notice here a key problem for these professed people of God. The fasting, the affliction of the soul, these things have been done with an expectation for something in return. Right? The fasting and afflicting of souls, these things have been done with expectation. And when I do something, expecting something in return, well, that's called a job. And the Bible talks about wages, Romans 6.23, right? We can never earn salvation. We can never earn or, or merit righteousness. Yes, their behavior was like those of the pagans who carried out various rituals in an effort to, to uh, awaken and manipulate their gods to act in their favor. But this form of manipulation, God finds repulsive. In fact, in speaking of Laodicea, it says God wants to vomit. You recall the story of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. And I don't remember if I have... Oh, where's he? I skipped, I'm sorry. Anyway, I don't, I don't have that on the screen there. But Luke 18, you know the story, the, the Pharisee and the publican. And, and, and it's here that we, um, we find a lot of the thinking that's in the church today. In our thinking. Perhaps. I mean, at least I'm not like so-and-so, right? I mean, we don't think it's consciously. We know that's wrong because of the story of Luke 18. We don't, we don't want to say it like that. But come on. Subliminal, you know what I'm trying to say. In there. The thoughts pass through, don't they? It's a subtle matter. But we, we, we think that... Um, at least we're not like that. This looking down upon the other is not about whether someone is liberal or conservative. For regardless of where you find yourself on the aisle, on which side of the aisle you find yourself, the reason I can make such an assumption is because of what Revelation three tells us. This is our condition. I didn't just come up with this. I don't just assume this. Laodicea and church. This is their condition. It's ours. If you're quietly disagreeing with me, then, then maybe you're standing in the need of prayer. Indeed, here in verse 3, we see a people who are exalting themselves by suggesting that they deserve recognition from God. That, that when he says they should be humbling or afflicting themselves, in Isaiah 58 verse 4, we find the solution. Notice, notice verse 4. It says, indeed, you fast for strife and debate. Indeed, you fast for what? Strife and... We talked a little bit about this yesterday, didn't we? Lord, help us. Strike with the fist of wickedness. You'll not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. In other words, what good is this fasting when you continually have contention and debate in your ranks? I mean, this is not the fast God is talking about. This idea of fasting while debating is so disgusting. 
not eating for a period of time, while it looks like it's, in some ways, it perhaps has made us more grumpy than anything. We fast to clear our minds, to make us more in tune with the voice of God, not so that we can debate more clearly against someone and prove them wrong. Amen? Again, I'm not negating truth here. Please don't take it that way. These folks seem to be treating their, their, their experience as a task that must be done to get God's attention. This message is for us. So God says here in verse 4, if you are seeking to be heard, please know it's not getting anywhere with me. Verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a, a bulrush? And to spread out sackcloth amid ashes and ashes. Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? So God then extends his questioning. Did God choose a day for you to afflict your soul? In other words, is it really just about afflicting yourself for one day? Just one day, really? It's, it, it's not just about a day, is it? What this word afflict means, the same word is used in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. It says, and you shall... And you shall remember the Lord, your God, how he led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, what God is asking for here is our hearts to be humbled. That's the kind of affliction of soul that we're talking about. Amen. Not about. Puffing ourselves up with arguments and debate. As we stand on the borders of the promised land, we too can expect to be tested upon this point. And it's upon this point that the disciples struggled, having lived in the presence of God. Why should we expect ourselves to be any less immune? Yes, God states very clearly his disdain for the pomp and circumstance. Not that these activities are bad, mind you. But without a humble heart, it's nothing but a cheap show. It's a charade. So to sum up the problem, as stated in verses 1 to 5, I'll use one word. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. God then offers a solution in the following verses, and that's where I want us to spend the remainder of our time. Notice verse 6. We'll read verses 6 and 7 together. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free and that you may break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you, when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. If you notice carefully, verse 6 appears to relate to suppression as it would relate to business. It relates to how we relate to those we've been given oversight of. Do you see it? We are called to avoid being oppressive. We are to practice, in other words, the golden rule. Verse 7 relates to selfless service, to those who are outside of our, our purview, purview. And we may note that in Matthew 25, the end-time picture God gives, God's servants are to look what they're supposed to look like. And 
we find that Jesus identifies himself with the poor and needy. And thus, when we, thus we serve them, when we serve them, we are in essence serving Christ. This here plays in significantly when we try to translate verses 13 and 14. You'll see in a moment. Notice verse 8. Oh, and by the way, did I, did I show you verse 8? Oh, yeah, verse 8. I'll show you the quote. Well, you saw the quote now. Success in our evangelistic work will transpire when we realize this point. Notice verse 8. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. When, when, when you correct the problem that has been explained, when you embrace verses 6 and 7, this will be your experience, as we see in verse 8. And that's where this quote is so powerful. Doing good is an excellent remedy for disease. We can be a vegetarian, a vegan, we can drink wheatgrass. But if we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we won't be in optimal health. We'll be filled with disease. Inspiration says so. This is the health message. This is medical ministry. This is medical ministry. Medical missionary work involves more than just diet and exercise, as important as that is. It involves service itself. Doing good is an excellent remedy for disease. Notice verse 9. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say. And he will say. Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. That's what we read about in verse 1, right? The bait and strife. If you, if, you take, if you put the finger down, if you extend your soul to the... Well, I, I, we'll wait on verse 10. Consider what we just read here in verse 9 with verses 6 and 7. Consider this in light of the message to Laodicea. Here I can't help but see a striking contrast... He's outside the door of our heart in Laodicea. But if we respond to the counsel in verses 6 and 7, he'll say, here I am. Amen? It's the way we open the door. We will find him standing there. And what was his counsel? He said, we need to buy some things. One of which was gold refined in the fire. Notice what inspiration says about the gold. It says, the gold mentioned by Christ, the true witness, which all must have, has been shown to me to be faith and love combined. And love takes the precedence of faith. Herein lies a hint as to why the counsel of Isaiah 58. Because if the heart isn't touched, if we don't choose to set aside our interest and to seek to tend to the interests of others then we'll fail to experience the character of Christ. We may profess the character of Christ, but we will fail to experience the character of Christ. We won't be a part of that great 144,000 who bore the name of Christ in their foreheads. Luke 3, 
7 to 16, but specifically, I'm just going to look at a few verses here just for the sake of time, verses 10 to 14. So the people asked him, this is John the Baptist speaking, um, or addressing them. They asked him, what shall we do then? John the Baptist said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has one. He who has, a, has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Verse 6 in Isaiah, right? Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. This is the Elijah message. Amen? This is the, what is necessary for Jesus to come the first time. And it's what's necessary for him to come the second time. If we want the Holy Spirit to fill us, then we need to trust God with all of our riches. Amen? With our reputation. With our success. Miss this point and we fail. We are no different than those first five verses of Isaiah 58. Verse 9 or verse 10, rather, this is, um, it says, verse 10, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness. Your darkness shall be as the noonday. It's more than just meeting physical needs, though. It's also emotional and spiritual as well. Taking away that which burdens and offering what's satisfied, what satisfies. It's personal. It's not something you can delegate to your nurse. Amen? It's about you. Medical ministry isn't just about taking away the pain. It's about offering joy. Verse 11 says, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden. And like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. When, when you follow and incorporate verses 6 and 7, it is then that, that the above verses, or the verses I just read, will take place in your life. You'll then have the joy of which you've always sung about. The drought will pass. The darkness will fade. You'll quickly grow and bloom as a watered garden. Become like a spring. Verse 12 says, I'm, I'm quickly approaching verses 13 and 14. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. So you'll become the repairer of the breach. Because what was missing has been found. Now, verse 2 spoke of an impressive people, you know, the, the daily seeking after him, delighting in him, fasting and all, all of the like. But there was a breach in the wall. There is a breach in the wall today. Amen? Ellen White says that that breach is the Sabbath. This, this passage confirms it. So my question is, is what does the Sabbath have to do with the hypocrisy that we see in verses 1 to 5? What does 
the Sabbath have to do with the lack of ministry and service that we see in verses 1 to 5? What does hypocrisy have to do, what does the Sabbath have to do with what we see in the church today? Let's look. Verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor, nor speaking your own words. Verses 1 to 5, sum it up, hypocrisy. What does this have to do with hypocrisy? This text at first can seem rather heavy. Don't do anything pleasurable on Sabbath. I mean, that's where it got a bad name in some circles. Really? Sounds rather strict, but be careful. Be careful for the sake of your children. Be careful. There's got to be an explanation here. Remember that there is a rebuke early in the chapter. And in verse 6... We see the, 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 where we gathered the, is where we gathered the idea that God is appearing to rebuke those who have taken advantage of those under their command. Remember verse 6? Remember verse 6? He, he alludes to this idea of, of oppressing those under you. This is the remedy for verses 1 and 5, verses 6 and 7. And he alludes to this oppressing, this notion that you are over someone... He asked them to remove that yoke and the heavy burdens. So with that as the backdrop, notice verse 13 more carefully. It says, if you turn your foot from the Sabbath. Now the Hebrew word from the, for, for, the, for turn away is the same word used to convey the idea of repentance. It means to turn or to bring back. The idea of turning away your foot is an idiomatic expression, meaning to stop doing what you are doing and return. Where it says from the Sabbath, the Hebrew word for the word from is actually a prefix and is actually translated at times as on account of. So thus we would read the text like this with that understanding. If you stop and return on account of the Sabbath... From doing your pleasure on my holy day. Now, if you look at the English Standard Version, you'll see a note in your margin that says pleasure is also translated as business. You can go and look at the lexicons. It's also translated as business, which I would argue makes more sense here, given the context of verse 6. Given the context of verse 6. Are you following? Okay, do I need to go over that again? If you stop and return on account of the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day. In the English Standard Version, if you look in the... And it's, I'm just using that as a reference because it'll be easy and quick for you. But you can look in lexicons as well. You will see a note in your margin that says pleasure is also or can be translated as business. Which what I would argue makes more sense in the light of verse 6 which talked about oppressing those under you. Are you with me? Okay. Then the text says, if you call the Sabbath a delight, which is no simple word. I think it's Joanne Davidson at the seminary that talks about how the word for delight is the, is the notion of an elegant delight. It's in the context of royalty. This is not a cheap word. Then the text says, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways. 
Again, the word for a way here, for way here can be translated as a customary or usual way of doing business. In other words, the Sabbath isn't a day for doing your usual business. In light of verse 6, I think it makes a lot of sense. Amen? Moving on, we have already seen here, pleasure is also translated as business and how it fits here. So when the text says, not to find or seek your own pleasure... Could it be that it's simply implying not to seek out or find your own business? Lastly, where it says not speak nor speaking your own words, again, the Hebrew word translated words, guess what? It's also translated, can be translated as matter or occupation or business. Thus, we find this warning again, talking about doing business on the Sabbath, which makes sense. Not only in light of verse 6, but what we see is a problem in Scripture. I mean, think about Nehemiah 13. It's not the same time period, but think about Nehemiah 13, trying to do business outside the gates. Dr. Ed Christensen is, is where I first discovered this, this notion of business here. He, he's a university professor in Pennsylvania. He wrote an article which was published in the Adventist Theological Society Journal back in 2002, which he explained these points and offers a more literal, his own translation, if you will, of verse 13. Here's how he translates it in light of what I just shared with you. If you turn back on account of the Sabbath, your foot's doing of your affairs of my, on my holy day, you call to the Sabbath exquisite delight to the holy day of Yahweh, honored. And if you make it honorable without doing your customary undertaking, without finding your business and talking of business... And then notice verse 14. I'm going to come back to verse 13, but notice verse 14. Well, no, hold on. I, I, I want to just take a moment here on verse 13. You're, you're, you're familiar with that passage in Ellen White where she talks about how um, those who are in medical work, when they are required to work on the Sabbath, those funds that are gleaned upon the Sabbath are to go for what? Charity. Amen? Charity. I remember I used to work in the nursing home. See, I've done medical missionary. <laughs> anyway, I was, a, I was a nursing aide in high school. And, and I remember working with others that there was a temptation at time. I never did this, that I recall. But, I mean, there, there was the thoughts that we go through. And I know others perhaps would do it. That, uh, And I'm not telling you anything new here. But, you know... There's a holiday of some kind, whatever you're, whatever, on Sunday. What if I switch Sunday and, and work two Saturdays so I could take holiday on Sunday and work on Holy Day? I mean, hopefully that's not a temptation anymore, but you understand the logic, right? I think we have been counseled for good reason that, that we must guard the Sabbath from business, from doing even things that can be good, but take away the rest of the Sabbath. Amen? Amen? Okay, look here, verse 14. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. 
then, if this is experienced, then you will delight yourself in the Lord. I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, to feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. When God says the mouth of the Lord has spoken, when, when you hear, you know, it reminds me of um, Revelation, what is it, 21, verse 5 or 6, where he talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And then he says, you know, write this down. You remember that? You got this, John? When God wants something to really be noted, he, you know, this is coming from the mouth of the Lord. It's a promise. So what does the Sabbath have to do with hypocrisy? What does the Sabbath have to do with the condition we find God's people in in verses 1 to 5? The blessing, he tells us very clearly, is not something that you've earned. It's not a wage. It comes when you set aside your business, your work. You see, God's people were seeking him and taking delight in the knowledge of him. But they were seeking their business, their success, their reputation. While they did all the others, but they, it was about them in the end. Amen? Climbing the corporate ladder. Taking that name, that position. Taking that job. Because it was about them. Yes, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But it's about them. Amen? Verse 6 and 7 imply that they were oppressing the weak. Go home and read Nehemiah 5 or Amos 2. It occurred much later, but the point is still, still true. What are the implications of this chapter today? On the eve of the second coming? There's much, of course, more than I can share in the time allotted. But for now, I want us to focus on how to repair the breach, which the text implies is the Sabbath. How is the Sabbath a means of repairing the hole in the wall? How is the Sabbath going to fix the problem of verses 1 to 5? I would suggest to you that it's not just about doing more medical missionary work on Sabbath. Should we be busy about the Lord's work? Should we be... Ministering to others on the beautiful Sabbath? Sure. But we're not going to find the cure. We're not going to patch the breach by working just in an organization to do something more missionary-minded on Sabbath. Are you with me? I'm not saying that's not got its place. I'm just saying, do you understand what I'm saying? This is a personal matter. This is about setting aside my business for his business. Not just on a day, but for the rest of my life. Amen? Otherwise, we are, we are teasing ourselves as though, oh, I got the idea now. I got the idea. We'll just, we'll just do something. Instead of taking a nap, we'll do something. And then we've, we've fixed Isaiah 58. It's not that simple. We're talking about matters of the heart. We're talking about a shift of thought where I put my trust in him. I, I, I can't earn it. I can't merit it. I can't succeed in my business unless I give my business to him and only do his business. If that shift has not occurred, I can decorate my calendar. I can decorate my, my wallet. But I will not be successful in finding the peace that passes all understanding. Come unto me, all ye that labor. 
Oh, come on, doctors, you know something about that. Amen? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And we're not just talking about the work week, are we? We're talking about that, that, that haunting feeling that we all know about where we realize we've been going it alone. Where we've sung, where we've walked, we've, we've talked to talk, but we've not experienced the walk. Verse 2, people are fasting, they're seeking him, they're worshiping him, but they failed to love one another as God called them to do. And you'll never, never be able to love your enemies successfully until Jesus puts that love in your hearts. It will be a show. It will be almost embarrassing unless Jesus puts it in there. Yes, people might say, oh, my mouth feels better. Oh, my, my, my feet feel better. Or you, you made me feel so much better today. You gave me hope. And they may go home. But unless, unless the love of Jesus is residing in our hearts, they will have a healed foot or a healed mouth, but they won't have a healed soul. Amen? Amen? I'm talking personal here. Should we, should we do these great initiatives corporately? Yes, by all means. Blessing, amen, and pathways to health. Praise God. Amen? But if the people that gather to support these initiatives are not experiencing this personally, then the corporate effort is just that. Corporate effort. The people in Isaiah 58 had the law intellectually, but not spiritually. It was more head than heart. Here, lied, here was the breach. And the Sabbath is all about resting in him, finally giving up on my success, on my reputation, on my future, and giving it to Jesus and saying, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I am simply going to worry about surrendering all today to you because you hold tomorrow. We can repair it through disinterested benevolence. It means not a disinterest in the third angel's message. Amen? I hear sometimes this notion that, well, I'm going to give a tract to my patient, or, or I'm going to, or maybe not a tract, I'm going, to, I'm going to, to minister to my patient, but I'm not, I'm not going to bait and switch it. I'm not going to... Folks, it's not a bait and switch. If you love your iPhone, you're going to tell them about your iPhone, aren't you? <laughs> if you love Jesus, it's just going to come out. It's not a bait and switch. It's because you know personally, personally is the key word here. You know personally that that is what has brought healing in your life. And so, yes, you fix the toe or the tooth or whatever. That's important. I'm not undermining that, but... But then you go for the soul. Amen? I mean, I love the testimonies we've heard this weekend. The powerful testimonies of reaching out to the soul and not just the toe and the, you know, all the body parts. It must be disinterested benevolence. The disinterest is in my own success, my own person. It's interest in them. Disinterested benevolence. It's not a social gospel Social gospel is sterile. 
Amen? The work of the people, she writes. The work of the people of God is to enlighten the world in accordance with the directions given in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Here is presented the plan of work which is to be carried on in every place where the truth takes hold of minds and hearts in connection with the proclamation of the message is to be done the work of relieving families who are in distress. Those who take their position on the Lord's side are to see in Seventh-day Adventists a warm-hearted, self-denying, self-sacrificing people who cheerfully and gladly minister to the needy. When you, self, when you offer up self-sacrifice, when you offer your finances, when you offer your home, when you offer your car, you are giving because you say, you know, I don't know where it's going to be replaced, but I know God holds all in his hands and most of all me. Right? It's just total rest in Christ. That's why the Sabbath is the repairing, the, 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 the breach in the wall. We may be keeping the Sabbath by not, you know, playing games or working on Sabbath. But if we're not experiencing the Sabbath in our hearts all through the week, then the Sabbath is the testimony of, of, of not what's in here. It's a charade. Sorry, folks, I get excited. I'm not mad. (laughs) I'm excited. Look here. Search heaven and earth, and there is no truth revealed more powerful than that which is made manifest in the works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid. This is the truth as it is in Jesus. Whoops. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principles of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel as in apostolic times. There's no better barometer of of where you are in your resting in Jesus than how easily and readily you're willing to let go of what's in your pocket or what's on your calendar. Amen? Could it be that what, what it boils down to is that we, like those in Isaiah 58 too, love to seek the Lord, but yet we remain selfish, caught up in our business, caught up in our profit making, rather than embracing Christ's life of self-sacrificial service. Thus a breach exists and God says, give it to others, I'll add it unto you. From what has been shown me, she says, Sabbath keepers are growing more selfish as they, as they increase in riches. Their love for Christ and his people is decreasing. They do not see the wants of the needy nor feel their sufferings and sorrows. So while it is clear that the need for disinterested benevolence, why the mention of the Sabbath in Isaiah 58, I would suggest that it is at least part, that it is at least in part because of what the Sabbath is a sign of. The Sabbath is a sign of what has already occurred in here. And if I'm not experiencing this in here, then again, the Sabbath is a charade. Let me illustrate, and I'll bring this to a close. We are told, for example, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, he then will come to claim them as his own. She then says the completeness, the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others spring, springs constantly from within. We're talking about impulse here. We're not talking about pressure. We're talking about impulse. Not feeling guilty that you have to do it in order. No, it's, it's impulse. The seal of the living God will be placed upon those who bear a likeness to, to Christ in character. Now open your Bible. Let's see. I think I have this on the screen. Yeah, Isaiah, Ezekiel 9.4. Notice this. This is beautiful. 
talking about the, the seal of God here, and, and this is in the, the type, if you will. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on their foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Alistair Wong, uh, Wong yeah, I'm saying it right. Alistair, he, he helped me see this. Notice this, the, 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 the seal on the forehead, the mark on the forehead. Yes, the Sabbath, but notice specifically how it's explained here. They sigh and cry over the all abominations that are done within it. Notice what she writes in Desire of Ages about when Jesus sighed and cried. Jesus gazes upon the scene. The vast multitude hush their shouts, spellbound by the vision of beauty. All eyes turn upon the Savior, expecting to see in his countenance the admiration they themselves feel. This is the triumphal entry. But instead of this, they behold a cloud of sorrow. Now catch this. Let this sink in. They are surprised and disappointed to see his eyes filled with tears. His body rocks back. His body... And his body rocked to and fro like a tree before the tempest, while a wail of anguish burns, burst from his quivering lips, as if from the depths of a broken heart. What a sight was this for angels to behold. Their loved commander is an agony of tears. I remember when my twin brother died in that crash. I remember waking up the next morning, dark in the home of, the, of his wife there. My, Tina and I were in the... Um, in the guest room there, and I remember waking up, and you felt like a squirrel that was inside of a cage. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? If you've been in that kind of anguish, I mean, you felt like the weight of the world was pressing down on you. You felt, you felt like you just wanted to burst out of this, this torment. And, and the crying that, that came forth was not just a, a sniffle. It wasn't just the kind of crying that happens when you've seen a, read a sad story. This was, this was the kind of wailing that Jesus is showing here. Not, he's showing it for his brothers and his sisters. Amen? This is the kind of compassion that Jesus has for his people. What a sight was this for the glad throng with the shouts of triumph and the waving of palm branches were escorting him to the glorious city where they fondly hoped he was about to reign. Jesus had wept at the grave of Lazarus, but it was in a godlike grief and sympathy with human woe. But this sudden sorrow was like a note of wailing in a grand triumphal chorus. Lord, please give us that kind of compassion. Amen? Help us to love even those who appear unlovable for whatever the reason. Help us to love like that in the midst of a scene of rejoicing where where all were praying him homage. Israel's king was in tears. Not silent tears of gladness, but tears and groans of insuppressible agony. The multitude were struck with a sudden gloom. Their acclamations were silenced. Many wept in sympathy with a grief they could not comprehend. The tears of Jesus were not in anticipation of his suffering. His was no selfish sorrow. The thought of his own agony did not intimidate that noble self-sacrificing soul. It was the sight of Jerusalem that pierced the heart of Jesus. Jerusalem that had rejected the Son of God, had scorned his love, that refused to be convinced by his mighty miracles was about to take his life. He saw that she was in her guilt of rejecting her redeemer and what she might have been had she accepted him who alone could heal her wound. 
wound. He had come to save her. How could he give her up? When you go into the office on Monday, that person comes in with an issue of the mouth or heart or stomach or whatever. And they're there to be fixed of a malady of some sort. Let this scene pass before you. And remember that this is a soul that has the opportunity of eternity in heaven. And may God, by his power, may because we, we, we bowed at his throne that morning, may his love so fill us that we see this person, not as a person with an ailment, but as a soul who is in dire need of eternity. And if every patient is treated with that that salve, then you can go home at night. You can rest. And you can enjoy the coming Sabbath with a rest that only Christ can afford. I believe he's coming soon, don't you? We'll be called rigid. We'll be called legalists. But if we can only love as he loved people will see that we are his disciples. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Dear Lord, forgive us for breaking your Sabbath. Forgive us, Lord, for for seeking after our own business, our own pleasure, our own vanity. Forgive us for where we have sought to hide your glory behind ours. Lord, we are but dust. We are unworthy. But we read a a passage just like that in Desire of Ages. And we, we read of how your compassion so overwhelmed you in the midst of the praise that was being afforded you. Lord, help us to be able to, to handle praise like that. Help us to care more for the soul of others than for anything else. Lord, help us to be like Moses. To have that, selfless, that selflessness that you so desire from us. So that in the end, we can enjoy eternity with you. Help us to embrace the Sabbath rest. Help us to embrace the medical ministry that this will afford. Bless us, go with us, and may we be a light on a hill in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.